0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in the book of Jeremiah this morning, Jeremiah chapter 15, where we left you hanging because 14 and 15 are kind of a combined unit. In chapter 14, there was a lot of intercessory prayer going on. Jeremiah was praying and confessing the sins of his entire people, and uh, that wasn't getting anywhere because God said, quit praying for these people, and I'm not going to hear you. I'm not going to provide. These people are going to be destroyed. And then at the end of the chapter, it seemed like the people themselves were confessing that the population of Jerusalem was repentant, and they sure are saying all the right things. It sounds good as they say these things, all right? And um, so in uh, these final verses of chapter 14, like 19 and following, um, it's, it's spoken of in, in, in the first person plural. We, you know, we waited for peace, but nothing good came. In verse 20, we know our wickedness, O Lord. We have sinned against you, uh, do not despise us for your own name's sake. Do, uh, do not disgrace the throne of your glory. Remember and do not annul your covenant with us. And and so it seems very repentant. It seems that these are good words. I'm, I'm happy to read these words. I, I expect God would be happy to hear these words. Uh, they even deny their idolatry. They testify to how impotent the false gods are. Are there any among the idols of the nations who give rain? Or can the heavens grant showers? Is it not you, O Lord our God? Therefore we hope in you, for you are the one who has done all these things. Wow. And and so we end chapter 14 thinking, that's a good way to end a chapter, right? That's a good way to end. This is a a great message, and and the people have repented. They're saying so many of the same things that that Jeremiah was saying. I can't wait to get into chapter 15 and, and, uh, and see what happens next. Well, here we are. The Lord said to me, uh, even though Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, even if, okay, even if, this is the concession to an extreme, even if Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not be with his people. Send them away from my presence and let them go. The Lord has no direct answer for them. He answers Jeremiah and says, I'm working with you, Jeremiah, in this, uh, in this chapter. All right, so this is where we are. Did I pray already? I did not pray. Well, we better pray. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty Father, I do thank you for this chapter. I thank you for the blessings of studying to show ourselves approved. And Father, uh, I'm excited about this chapter. There's a lot of detail here and things that uh, I find so applicable in our nation, in our uh, testing and day-to-day circumstances. And yet we do want to stop and recognize, Father, that uh, we, we require your blessings of this message or we're not going to learn a thing. We need the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit to communicate truth, to take even the deep things of God and speak to our human spirits. So, Father, combine spiritual with spiritual. Take the spiritual truth and um, implant it to our uh, spiritual re- uh, ears to hear. Father, allow us to receive this word implanted that's able to save our souls. Bless the uh, content of this chapter and the uh, application that we can uh, live this chapter out for the glory of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. For it is in His name that we pray. Amen. All right. The judgment upon Jerusalem is so certain that not even, okay, not even, and this is a connection with last hour. Last hour, we were talking about even, or even if, in the language of extreme, a language in in Galatians six one. even if a man is caught in any trespass, Even if, all right, this is Jesus' own, can't imagine anything better than this scenario. Moses and Samuel together at the same time. Wow. You know, they never prayed together because they lived centuries apart. But could you imagine a a, a scenario in which Moses is still on this earth, Samuel is still on this earth, they're alive, they're at the peak of their power and their ministry. Could you imagine? And even if Moses and Samuel together were to pray they would, not rescue. Uh, they would not rescue Jerusalem, okay? And that's interesting. We've got a similar expression that's used in, in Ezekiel where even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were together, and, and that's a different co- context and a different application, a different set of heroes directed towards a Gentile audience uh, that if even Noah, Daniel, and Job were together, they would only rescue themselves. They could not rescue uh, Judah. Here in, uh, in this book, the two heroes are Moses and Samuel. And even if they were to stand before me, my heart would not be with this people. And these are prophets that made it a practice to defend Israel in their prayer life, to stand and argue the case of the Jewish people, to remind the Lord of his covenants. They even got ornery with the Lord in their prayers to tell the Lord what he could not do because God said, God made certain eternal promises and uh, we'll take a look at a couple of those passages here this morning. So, uh, my heart would not be with us people. Send them away from my presence and let them go. And this is like, uh, you know, the Lord telling Jeremiah, get them out of here. I'm not talking to them. You know, like a, a, a father who says, uh, you know, will you tell your mother... Um, whatever, whatever. And you expect the kid's going to convey the message, right? Or you tell your father, blah, blah, blah. And, and and you get this back and forth going between a father and mother that aren't speaking to one another, but they're using their child as the proxy, all right? Here's the Lord. He's not talking to Israel. He's talking to Jeremiah. And he says, you go tell them, all right? <laughs> you go tell them that not even Moses and Samuel combined is going to save them, right? You know, so what, what do you think Jeremiah is going to do all by himself, okay? And uh, I think Jeremiah was, was right up there with him. I think he was the, the, the next tier to Moses and, and Samuel. So as I read this text, I think, man, we could just slide uh, Jeremiah right there. Almost as if verse 1 says, Even though Moses and Samuel were to stand with you, Jeremiah, before me, I would, uh, my heart would not be with this people. And so it shall be when they say to you, where should we go? that you are to tell them, thus saith the Lord. So God is still not talking to his people, but he anticipates that they're going to have a question for Jeremiah. And they're going to ask Jeremiah, well, then what do we do? All right. And here's what you're going to tell them. Those destined to death, you're going to go to death. And those destined for the sword, you're going to go to the sword. And those destined to famine, to famine. And those destined to captivity, for captivity. So one of those four places is where you're going. And uh, three of them are all death, all right? I will appoint over them four kinds of doom, declares the Lord, to sword, the sword to slay, the dogs to drag off, the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. I will make them an object of horror among all the kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem." We discussed this last week. They reached a tipping point. They crossed a line that is the line of no return. And he warned them about that line during the days of Manasseh and they crossed it anyway. All right. And so now there's nothing that Jeremiah is going to do or Ezekiel or Daniel or any of the contemporary prophets. There's nothing they're going to do. Two of those prophets are going to go into captivity and Jeremiah will stay right there. He will be in the city as the city falls. And this is his assignment to, uh, to testify in this, in this uh, truth. But they get to become an object of horror. And I think for 200 years, our nation has been an object of blessing, whereby other nations have looked at us and seen favor. We've seen grace. We've seen the hand of blessing upon this nation. I don't want to see it reach the point where other nations look at us and see the hand of God's judgment on this nation. And yet what else can they start seeing? As our nation has gone the the evil direction that it's gone. So a lot of these things are on my heart as I read I read a verse like this. Indeed, who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? <laughs> who will mourn for you? Jeremiah spent much of chapter fourteen praying for you, but you're gonna reach a point here and not even he's gonna be praying for you anymore. Who's who's gonna who's left to pray for you guys? Who will have pity? Who will mourn? Who will turn aside to ask about your welfare? You who have forsaken me, declares the Lord, you keep going backward. So I will stretch out my hand against you and destroy you. I am tired of relenting. They would have cycles of, of, of judgment, cycles of repentance, cycles of relenting, cycles, and they would just go and go and go from the judges through the era of the kings on to this present time, and God says he's done. He says he's done. He is tired of relenting. I will winnow them with a winnowing fork at the gates of the land. I will bereave them of children. I will destroy my people. They do not repent of their ways. Their widows will be more numerous before me than the sands of the sea. I will bring against them, against the mother of a young man, a destroyer at noonday. I will suddenly bring down on her anguish and dismay. Verse 9, finally, she who bore seven sons pines away. Here's a woman that ought to be the happiest woman in town. She who bore seven sons pines away. Her breathing is labored. Her son has set while it was yet day. She has been shamed and humiliated. So I will give over their survivors to the sword before their enemies declares the Lord. All right, there's verses one through nine. That's the first unit of what we're looking at here. The judgment upon Jerusalem is so certain that not even Moses and Samuel could successfully avert that judgment by their intercessory prayers. If you know these stories, then this will be reviewed to you. If you're not familiar with these stories, this, uh, this uh, might shock you at how impudent they can be in their prayer life. But in uh, Exodus 32 and in Numbers 14, we have two episodes in which Moses stands before the Lord. Moses twice stood before the Lord, stood between the Lord and Israel. And twice, Moses successfully interceded for Israel's deliverance, all right? And if you really know the the background on this, then you know that there was a third occasion when Moses could have likewise interceded and been a blessing. But by that third time, Moses was done with them too. (laughs) By that third time, uh, Moses was all too happy to step back and say, okay, Lord, blast them, I'm sick of these people. Um, But for the first two times, Moses passed the test. And the Lord said to Moses, stand back. All right. And so, um, we won't have to spend a lot of time on this, but Exodus 32, Exodus 32, verses 9 through 14. While uh, Moses is up there on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, the people are down there at the bottom building a golden calf and and, uh, plunging into idolatry. And uh, in verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. And Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people, whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak? And you'll notice his concern here is for the testimony among the nations. And that's what Jeremiah's message is all about, too. God is judging them in the sight of all the nations so that the nations have a clear picture on the holiness of God. And so uh, why should the nations speak with, and say, well, with evil intent, he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself. See, this is the gist of his prayer. He says, your Abrahamic covenant was an unconditional covenant. And if you break it, then you're a faithless liar. And he said, you can't be a faithless liar. You can't do what you're telling me you're about to do. And Moses has the temerity the intimacy with the Lord to tell God what he cannot do. I, I ask, do we have that kind of temerity? Are we so familiar with the will of God that when we see something happen that appears to defy his will, we can th- throw it in his face and say, Lord, is this what you're really doing? And we hold, and we tell him what to do and what he can't do based upon what he said he would do. This is an example. And it's not just Moses, it's not just Samuel. I see David offering similar prayers. I see Jesus offering similar prayers. And we're supposed to pray after these patterns. And so uh, in verse 14, the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. I think this is an anthropomorphic expression that God knew all in all what he was going to do. This was a test of of, of Moses' faith and that the expression changed his mind is used to reflect how it appears from our perspective when we pray and something different happens. It sure seems to us, it's it's no different than saying the sun rose. The sun didn't rise, the planet revolved. But we use the expression because from our perspective, that's what it seems like. Same thing with our prayers. It seems like God changed his mind. And so the anthropomorphic expression is that he relented. He changed his mind. Even though we know God is not a man that he should relent or that he should change his mind. He knows with omniscience everything that's going to happen from alpha to omega. All right, Numbers 14, and a second example of this. Numbers 14. And um, the spies view the land in chapter 13, and they rebel. <laughs> they they uh, sent two, uh, a spy from every tribe, and they come back, and they rebel because there's giants in the land, you know. I guess God was not aware of that when he brought them out of Egypt. You know, his mistake. He brought them out of Egypt. He brought them through the wilderness. He sends them to the land and oh, yeah. No, God knew that. He has a plan for that. Caleb and Joshua understood that. He said, yeah, there's giants there, but we're going to go kill them. God's giving us this land. They had faith. Most of the 10 of the tribes did not. And so they rebel. And in this rebellion, verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me? despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst. Keep in mind, a body of redeemed people has to continue to believe in the Lord day by day. All right? You and I are a body of redeemed people. He brought them out of, the, the, out of bondage, he brought them through the Red Sea, crashed the Red Sea down behind them. There's no going back. They are once and for all delivered out of their bondage. But they still must continue to believe in their Savior. And that's our imperative. We're redeemed. We're a redeemed body. We're saved. Uh, We're never going back to our unsaved condition because you can't lose your salvation. But what's expected of us? We must continue to believe God. We must continue to walk by faith. And so we have the pattern here. And so he's going to smite them. And, And it's interesting. Despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst, I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them. I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Well, if you do that, the Egyptians will hear of it. And then they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land, You only did it because you couldn't conquer those giants. <laughs> all right? I'm paraphrasing. I'm running out of time. But that's the, that's the example, all right? Now, not only did Moses do that, but Samuel did that. Samuel twice stood before the Lord and successfully delivered Israel from the Philistines. And I think Samuel is a remarkable case because he, we call him, he's the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. And much of what he did was like a judge, all the judges before him, Samson and Gideon and those guys. But then he's the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. Much of what he did was like Moses. And in fact, paralleled Moses as he then uh, anointed a king and ministered to the kings of, uh, of Israel. Saul, and then David. And so uh, these may be episodes we're not as familiar with in 1 Samuel 7 and 1 Samuel 12. 1 Samuel 7 and 1 Samuel 12. Samuel's the main character of 1 Samuel, um, but not the author since he dies and uh, is not featured in 2 Samuel. I think Nathan was the author of Samuel. One book, by the way. Couldn't fit it on a single scroll, so they broke it into two parts. First Samuel 7. Pages are flipping slow this morning. Here we go. The modem crashed. Everything is going wrong today. No, I'm teasing. All right, First Samuel 7. When the Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered to Mizpah. Well, let me back up. Uh, verse 3. Samuel spoke to the house of Israel saying, if you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone. He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtaroth and served the Lord alone. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. And this is what they did. And they gathered a Mizpah, drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. And so, uh, anyway, this all comes down through verse 17, down through the end of the chapter, and it's successful. It works. Um, as he's offering these sacrifices, and the Lord thunders for battle in verse 10, confusing the Philistines. And then, um, this is the event when, because of this victory, Samuel takes a stone, sets it between Mizpah and Shen, and they name it Ebenezer. All right. If you ever sing that hymn about "Here I raise mine Ebenezer," that's what this is about. This is about the faithfulness of Samuel in his ministry towards uh, the Jewish people in their fear against the Philistines. And so, um, the chapter kind of ends there, giving a summary of uh, samuel in his life we get over to chapter 12 and now <laughs> um even though they've been saved by the lord and even though there's an ebenezer stone there to witness that um they're having problems again and instead of calling upon uh, upon the lord to deliver them they decide that what they really need is a king what we really need is we need to be like the nations around us because it's, it's not working out too well, uh, having God for our king and having judges and whatnot. Let's, let's, uh, let's get a real king and we can be like those nations around us. And so um, this is what's happening here. We get into chapter 12 and they're going to confirm a king. And, uh, and it's, it's sad, it's tragic. Uh, Verse 12, when you saw that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us, although the Lord your God was your king. Now therefore, here's the king whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for, and behold, the Lord has set a king over you. He gives you what you want, and it's not going to be good. You got Saul for the first uh, 40 years, all right? Then God will give you the king he wants, and that'll be good. But first, they got to get this lesson and so uh anyway there's more thunder there's more of the lord's answering there's more praying all the people in verse 19 said to samuel pray for your servants to the lord your god so that we may not die for we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king and they know they've stepped it they've stepped across the line they know they've crossed a line so they say well will you pray for us and so now, for the second time, Samuel becomes an intercessor on behalf of his people, and uh, and they get a king. Okay, and uh, that's the introduction of Saul there in chapter thirteen. Some more detail in this paragraph: the judgment of winnowing. You saw the expression "winnowing." I will winnow them with a winnowing fork in verse seven. Uh, You can go back to Isaiah 41 and verse 16 and review your Isaiah notes, but this is a principle that takes this immediate context and casts it forward into an eschatological role. In other words, a dual understanding of this text, not only in the day and age of Jeremiah, literally applying to the population of Israel in Jeremiah's day, but also more than that, looking forward to the great tribulation, looking forward to Antichrist, looking forward to God's faithfulness. Yes, they're going to be scattered. Yes, they're going to go to Babylon. They will have an eternal destiny. They will be provided for. And so you see the judgment of winnowing. And uh, you might recall in Isaiah 41, the great chapter in Isaiah 41, whereby the winnowing takes place. And what they have to look forward to the blessings of what they have to look forward to, and it's it's what uh, Yahweh is going to do. So, um, anyway, I would probably lose track of the whole hour if I get lost here in Isaiah forty one. But notice it is a it is a prophecy, it is an eschatological prophecy, it involves winnowing. I have made you a new sharp threshing sledge with double edges. You will thresh the mountains and pulverize them, and make the hills like chaff. You will winnow them and the wind will carry them away, and the storm will scatter them but you will rejoice in the Lord and you will glory in the Holy One of Israel. So connect this chapter with Isaiah 41. I think you'll do it real well. You also need to do some angelic studies. You need to do some of the deepest angelic studies you do when you talk about the destroyer and what is Shaddad, and who is the destroyer. And you're going to find information there in Isaiah 33, which we've already covered and provided some notes available there with respect to the destroyer and the role of fallen angels in judgment when God brings judgment upon a uh, a human land of rebellion. And so these two aspects in verse 7 and verse 8 takes the context of 1 through 9 And it doesn't deny the immediate literal application in Jeremiah's day, but it takes it beyond. It takes it deeper, and it takes it into an eschatological realm, expanding this message from a contemporary prophecy to an eschatological prophecy. And I think if you ignore this in your uh, Daniel and Revelation studies, if you ignore this in your tribulational studies, I think you're missing a vital piece of of what the tribulation is going to be like. All right next paragraph 10 through 14 sorry mom jeremiah weeps for his mother he weeps for his mother and i, I was hoping we would get to this chapter on mother's day we missed it by uh, you know a couple months um it's a it's a good chapter to preach on mother's day it's a it's a good paragraph here where he laments his mother's um curse uh mainly himself all right um Let's look at verses 10 through 14 and see what this complaint is. Woe woe to me, my mother, that you have borne me as a man of strife and a man of contention to all the land. So, man, mom, do you have the worst son that's ever been born? All right? And, you know, the the judgment is such that even a woman who's born seven sons is going to struggle. But as far as we know, Jeremiah is the only offspring of his mom. But, um... She doesn't have seven sons. She just has one, as far as we know. And, and he's kind of kind of trouble, right? He's, he's nefarious. Uh, everyone looks to him like, like he's the worst guy in town. In fact, because he stands opposed to all those other false prophets everywhere, he's the one that's viewed as being the troublemaker. He's the one that's, that's prophesying doom and gloom while all these other ones are saying, no, we're going to be rescued. We're, we have it great. And so he laments for his mother's sake here as a man of strife and a man of contention to all the land. I have not lent nor have men lent money to me. Yet everyone curses me. The usual thing that makes people mad at you is a money problem, right? (laughs) Either you owe somebody, and you're not paying it back or they owe you and they're not paying it back because they're mad at you or they can't. And, and so money things is usually what makes people mad at one another. It's usually what marriages fight about. It's usually about what churches fight about. Typically there's a money issue involved and everyone hates somebody else because of the money. And Jeremiah says, I haven't lent anybody anything and they hate my guts. And the Lord said, Surely I will set you free for purposes of good. Surely I will cause the enemy to make supplication to you in a time of disaster and in a time of distress. So the Lord's got an answer for Jeremiah here. Um, And uh, to resolve some of that. Can anyone smash iron, iron from the north or bronze? Your wealth and your treasures I will give for booty without cost, even for all your sins and within all your borders. Then I will cause your enemies to bring it into a land you do not know, for a fire has been kindled in my anger. It will burn upon you. And uh, the Lord didn't spend a lot of time on Jeremiah's pity party. (laughs) The Lord answered briefly. To say, get over it. They're gonna, they're gonna come to you for help. And then he started going into some deeper prophecies that are beyond anything that Jeremiah could even imagine in, uh, in his own, you know, smashing iron and and uh, the issues here that go into the, the plundering, the booty that's gonna be plundered when Jesus comes and conquers. All right, and uh, the blessings there. So Jeremiah weeps for his mother. Really, he's complaining for his own sake. He'll do it again, by the way, in chapter 20. Um, This is the first of two such birth regrets, and it's fairly common. A lot of people regret the way their life has turned out, or they're real depressed over certain things. Uh, If they get depressed enough, then they want to die. If they get even more depressed than that, they start regretting that they were ever born in the first place. Uh, Then they they prolong a, a tremendous pity party of, well, what if, and everything would be better if I wasn't even here right how much better would life be if if i wasn't even here okay and then you know it becomes the plot too it's a wonderful life and and george bailey gets to learn you know hey no people were blessed because of you and uh this angel earns his wings and that's not theological but um but we have these pity parties everybody does even the greatest heroes of the scripture have these pity parties Job had these pity parties. Uh, a lot of these folks, Jonah, I think, was trying to commit suicide when he had him toss him overboard. I think um, we have these. So uh, stay tuned. We'll be back in a, in a similar place uh, in chapter 20. So that's about five weeks from now. Um, we'll just take a quick peek at it. Cursed be the day when I was born. Let the day not be blessed when my mother bore me. So in other words, don't say happy birthday, say unhappy birthday. Say, cursed be this day. You know This is the day of Jeremiah's birth. So don't celebrate it, don't send gifts. In fact, just sit in your doom and gloom every time this day comes around. Um, Let not the day be blessed when my mother bore me. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father saying, a baby boy has been born to you. Okay? This is back in the old-fashioned days when men didn't go into the delivery room. And they bring news to him to say it's a boy and made him very happy. But let that man be like the cities which the Lord overthrew without relenting and let him hear an outcry in the morning and a shout of alarm at noon because he did not kill me before birth so that my mother would have been my grave in her womb ever pregnant. Why did I ever come from the womb? To look on trouble and sorrow so that my days have been spent in shame." You know, birth is a a travail. Birth is labor. Birth hurts. Birth is is an excruciating process. And if that's the best day of your life, because everything since then has just gone downhill from there, you understand it's a bit of hyperbole on Jeremiah's part, okay? And we all voice the the similar thing. Job likewise had similar lamentations. In fact, Job was even more blunt. In his expressions than Jeremiah. In Job 3 and Job 10, there are a couple of similar expressions. Uh, Afterward, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth, and Job said, Let the day perish on which I was to be born. And the night which said, A boy is conceived. So not just the birthday, let's not just take the birthday off the calendar. How about the night on which I was conceived? Let's get that off the calendar as well. May that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it, nor light shine on it. Let darkness and black gloom claim it. Let a cloud settle on it and blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, let darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. We're just going to take it off the calendar. We're going to skip from this day to the next and be done with it. Never again are we going to have a a night like that. Behold, let that night be barren. No more conceptions on that night ever again anywhere on planet Earth. Let no, in this term, this joyful shout enter into it. That's the, the kind of the blunt, vulgar part. It's talking about the orgasm of conception and that said this is how gloomy everything is no one's conceived on this night no one has pleasure on this night because um, it did not shut the opening of my mother's womb or hide trouble from my eyes why did I not die at birth come forth from the womb and expire why did knees receive me why did breasts that I should suck and it would have been better if I would have never been born so that's Job in his chapter 3, Lament, and similar language in his chapter 10, Lament. Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Would that I had died and no eye had seen me. I should have been as though I had not been carried from womb to tomb. Carried from womb to tomb. You wondered where that expression came from? There you go. All right. Would that he not let my few days alone withdraw from me, that I may have a little cheer before I go, and I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow. Yeah, he's just waiting to die. And if God would be kind enough to ignore him in the meantime, he would kindly die in peace. Just leave me alone. Now, in the process of this, I find it interesting The Lord gives Jeremiah a short-term prophecy. Verse 11 is a short-term prophecy that's fulfilled repeatedly in Jeremiah's lifetime. And as it's repeated, I think every time it gets repeated, Jeremiah is going to be reminded about how faithful the Lord is, and he's going to be encouraged about other things. He's going to be encouraged about long-term prophecies. You know, you get a prophecy about a New Covenant, you get a prophecy about days are coming while well, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And the house. Of, well, tell you what, folks, no one's going to live long enough to see that. You're going to preach a message like that. You're going to write that in Scripture. You're going to have a long-term prophecy like the new covenant. But, I mean, here we are in, in 2016 and it still hasn't happened yet. That new covenant is a very long-term prophecy. That's why we also have short-term prophecies. That's why we have immediate things that happen as they're told ahead of time. Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And guess what? That happened before a rooster crowed. And so there's encouragement saying, this guy knows what he's talking about. (laughs) Here's a prophet. Here's a message. I I can cling to everything else he said this night. And for Jesus, that was the upper room discourse. For Jeremiah, of course, it's all these sweeping second advent prophecies for millennium and fullness of time. Okay? And so this prophecy about uh, those who hate you are going to come to you gets fulfilled again and again and again uh, throughout this book. We're going to see fulfillment of 1511. We're going to see in chapter 21, 37, and 38 again and again and again. uh, I will cause the enemy to make supplication to you in a time of disaster and in a time of distress. The enemy here is King Zedekiah. King Zedekiah is going to hate everything Jeremiah has to say, but he keeps going back to Jeremiah again and again and again. Where else is he going to go? <laughs> All those false prophets are a bunch of liars. It's like uh, Peter. you know, Everyone was de- uh, departing from Jesus, and Jesus said, are you going to leave me too? Peter said, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And, and so that, that concept, I think, is here with King Zedekiah he can't help himself. He keeps going to, to Jeremiah to get answers and he doesn't like the answers he gets. And so I would encourage you in uh, your reading here, and we can look at this, we're, we're doing well. In Jeremiah 21, we'll give you a preview. Stay tuned for six weeks from now. Um, the word of the Lord, which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, when King Zedekiah sent to him Hashur, the son of Melchijah, and Zephaniah, the priest, the son of Maseah, saying, Please inquire of the Lord on our behalf, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is warring against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful acts, so that the enemy will, will withdraw to us. And Jeremiah said to them, You shall say to Zedekiah as follows. <laughs> here's what you're going to tell him. All right? You didn't come yourself, but you sent these two guys. And uh and so forth. And you don't like what you're gonna hear. You don't like this. You are going to captivity. And so it's an unhappy message here in uh one through seven. He does it again in, in chapter thirty-seven, Jeremiah 37. He's gonna do it again. He's like, Why bother? You don't you don't want to hear it. Why why do you bother? You know, I keep waiting for President Obama to call me up and request some guidance. You know, ask what I think the the biblical view is on, um, you know, the Middle East or uh, anything related to Israel or eschatology. It hasn't happened yet. I I would sit down with them. I'd be glad to. It just hasn't happened yet. Jeremiah 37. Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had made king in the land of Judah. Remember, Zedekiah is not line of Christ. Zedekiah, Zedekiah is the uncle of the last line of Christ king that was on that throne. Uh, Jeconiah is the one that the line of Christ is tracked through. Zedekiah is an uncle that uh, got put there, and um, he's, he's a piece of work, all right? So Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had made king in the land of Judah. He reigned as king in place of Caniah, Jeconiah, son of Jehoiakim. But neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land listened to the words of the Lord, which he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. They couldn't care less. All right? So when you enter into office... You know, who is, the, who is the leading prophet of your day? If you're, if you're a new king and there is a prophet installed by Yahweh, you want to know who he is and you want to listen to him. Hezekiah sure did. Hezekiah was right there side by side with Isaiah, listening to everything Isaiah had to say. But Manasseh did not, and Zedekiah did not. Yet, King Zedekiah sent Jehuchal, son of Shelemiah and Zephaniah, son of Messiah, the priest, to Jeremiah the prophet, saying, please pray to the Lord our God on our behalf. And so I don't want to listen to anything you have to say, but would you please pray for me? (laughs) You know, I've had people ask me, you know, would you pray for me? Like, why? You don't believe in prayer. What do you want my prayers for? You know, I haven't seen you in church. Are you listening to my preaching? Why do you want my praying? Different things. And you wonder why do people have this idea that my life's a wreck? Here's a good person. Maybe he'll pray for me, and maybe that'll count for something. Anyway. Now Jeremiah was still coming in and going out among the people, for they had not yet put him into prison. Well, that'll change. Because in the consequence here of this message in chapter 37, um they're gonna they're gonna put him in prison. Okay. And uh Verse 21, King Zedekiah gave commandment and they committed Jeremiah to the court of the guardhouse, gave him a loaf of bread daily from the Baker Street until all the bread in the city was gone. So Jeremiah remained in the court of the guardhouse. So there you go. Maybe if uh, if I, they did bring me to the White House to speak truth to our president, I would probably end up somewhere similar to this maybe by the end of the chapter. <laughs> chapter 38, verses 14 through It happens again. Um, And he's still in the court of the the house. You notice in verse 13, actually they throw him into a a cistern and then they have to pull him up with ropes and lift him out of the cistern. (laughs) Okay. And uh, say, well, you can stay now in the court of the guardhouse. So King Zedekiah sent and had Jeremiah the prophet brought to him at the third entrance, that is the house of the Lord. And the king said to Jeremiah, I am going to ask you something. Do not hide anything from me what have been doing this whole time. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, If I tell you, will you have not certainly put me to death? Besides, I have I gave you advice, you will not listen to me. But King Zedekiah swore to Jeremiah in secret, saying, As the Lord lives, who made this life for us, surely I will not put you to death, nor will I give you over to the hand of these men who are seeking your life. Well, all right, if you say so, like Lucy in the football. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, thus says the Lord God of hosts. And then here's the message. And uh, we get to the end of the chapter and he's still in prison. But he doesn't kill him, so that's nice. But the three times that his enemy comes to him asking for answers, I believe is a fulfillment, a short-term prophecy fulfillment of this promise we're looking at today in Jeremiah 15, 11. That the enemy, the adversary, will come to him in uh, in the things here, uh, surely I will cause I will set you free for purposes of good, I will cause the enemy to make supplication to you in a time of disaster and in a time of distress, and that's kind of typical, don't you think in our culture, in our modern days. As long as things are fine, people aren't too religious, but man, you let some planes hit the Twin Towers and churches get packed out the next weekend. You know, our nation comes under attack or the stock market crashes, everyone's, ooh, we better go to church. We better see if the Bible addresses this or let's get serious about spirituality. Different things there. All right. Then the last part of the chapter. Another lamentation. Jeremiah laments his prayer in his prayer to the Lord. That's verses 15 through 18. And in reply, the Lord invites Jeremiah to return to the ministry. I think Jeremiah quits. I think in this prayer, he's quitting. He's resigning his commission. And God says, all right, you can quit if you want. Or if you return to me, I think the language in verse 19, if you return... I will restore you. And that's, that's huge. I think that's tremendous. I, I, I'm thankful we hit that this week because this is we're starting off Galatians 6 this week too about restoring such a one. Even if any, any brother is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Looking to yourself too, lest you also be tempted. All right, so both our Galatians series and our Jeremiah series have hit this same aspect here today. If you return, I will restore you. And so I think in the Lord's answer, we really get the sense of things in in his lamentation, wishing he was born dead, wishing he was stillborn, uh, wishing, hating his entire life, lamenting how much he's hated, and, and pretty much just sick and tired of it. Pretty much just saying, you know what? I don't need this. I'm done. And the Lord says, okay, all right, guess you're done. But if you return, here's what I'll do. And you'll notice he's not going to take away all his problems, but he's going to be faithful. He's going to see you through all these other afflictions. And so it's uh, it's interesting here. Verses 15 through 18. And this, I don't know, I hope this is an encouragement to you. These verses meant a lot to me in my study. He says, you who know, O Lord, remember me. Take notice of me. You know, I I think I've I've slipped off your radar here, Lord. Lately, you've not paid much attention to me. Uh, Remember remember me? (laughs) You who know, oh Lord, remember me? Hello? Take notice of me. Take vengeance for me on my persecutors. Do not, in view of your patience, take me away. Know that for your sake... I endure reproach. In other words, God, I know you're long-suffering, but that's enough. (laughs) In view of your patience, don't take me away. Get them. Know that for your sake I endure reproach. Your words were found, and I ate them. Your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. That's probably the most special verse in the whole book. It is the only verse in the whole book where Jeremiah communicates an appreciation for his own ministry. The one and only place in the entire book that he says anything positive about his ministry and his experience. I did not sit in the circle of merrymakers, nor did I exult, because of your hand upon me I sat alone, for you filled me with indignation. Why has my pain been perpetual? You know, we can endure a lot of pain, but if it's chronic, if it never stops, how long can we endure it? And my wound incurable, refusing to be healed. It's terminal and it will not get any better. Will you indeed be to me like a deceptive stream with water that is unreliable? He's panting for it, he's panting for it, and he gets there and it's dry the deceptive stream. So that's his lament. And therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, I will restore you. Before me, you will stand. Who cares about them? (laughs) Stand before them, you're standing before me. And if you extract the precious from the worthless, what do you think the mine is all about? What do you think it's about when you're a communicator of the word of God? And you're purifying the dross from the ore. And you're providing gold, silver, and precious stones in your communication of truth. You extract the precious from the worthless. You will become my spokesman. They, for their part, may turn to you. But as for you, you must not turn to them. If you make public uh, opinion your benchmark, you're in trouble. If you make popularity the benchmark of your ministry, you got the wrong benchmark. They may turn to you. You may be the most popular guy in town, but your faith is not in that. I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze, and though they fight against you, they will not prevail over you, for I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. So I will deliver you from the hand of the wicked. I will redeem you from the grasp of the violent. In other words, come back to the ministry. It's not going to get easier, but I'm going to turn you into this tower this fortified wall of bronze and you're going to withstand everything they sling at you for the rest of your ministry. All right. So the Lord invites Jeremiah to return to the ministry. You know, I talk about these men, men of whom the world is not worthy, pastors from previous generations. We're going to have a testimony of that in Galatians 6 when we talk about the price to be paid for, uh, for serving in the ministry. And I think of what uh, theme and Chet McCauley and a lot of these guys. Man, they paid a price, but they stayed faithful. Absolutely, they stayed faithful in their in their day. All right, so we'll we'll say some things about that. You know, what if there is nothing whatsoever in life to enjoy? There's the word of God, isn't there? In a life and ministry that has virtually nothing to enjoy. Jeremiah took delight in his <laughs> doctrinal digestion your words were found and i ate them your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart you know when when there's nothing else you're you're struggling to find something to enjoy okay you find enjoyment in sports then your team blows it. Mm-hmm. You know, you find enjoyment in politics and then the wrong party wins. And you find enjoyment in, in, in what? What do you find enjoyment in? Work, career, business fails. You find enjoyment in what? What do you find enjoyment in? And in his case, man, I mean, everybody hates him. His family hates him. There was a murder, a conspiracy taking place in Anatho. That's his hometown. His own clan, his own own, uh, group of of, of priests were getting ready to kill him. And not like they were a bunch of heroes. They were renegades too. The, The priests of Anathoth were disqualified from serving as priests. But he takes delight in the word of God. And you know, you think about it. Isn't this not true for us in our culture, for any believer in any nation? Today, you can delight in the word of god okay if you have access to the word of god your words were found and i ate them everything else is going straight to timbuktu but but man today i can i can read my bible i got freedom to read my bible what a blessing The Lord offers Jeremiah the opportunity to keep his job and promises his faithfulness even in the midst of continued opposition. Even in the midst of continued opposition. The Lord offers Jeremiah the opportunity to keep his job. You know, God, it's interesting, God doesn't accept quitters. You ever notice that? I'm trying to think, is there an example? People that wanted to quit, and then God, you know, sends a fish, sends a great whale, swallow him, spit him on the beach, you know, sit on the, you know, pout under the tree, kill the tree, you know. Um, not going to let people quit. Moses wanted to quit, send Aaron instead, you know. See, God's not a quitter. He doesn't let us quit. And uh, all right, you know, you got a job to do. We are saved under good works, which are prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And it's not up to us to say, okay, we're done. It's up to God to say, okay, you're done. And then when you finish serving the purpose of God in your generation, Acts 13, you will die, you will be laid to rest with your fathers. And that's the pattern. So as long as you're still here, there's a reason for that. Your work is not yet done. And you don't want to be like Job. We saw that passage earlier where he just wants to leave me alone. I'll go be miserable until I die. No, I'm still here. There's a reason why I'm still here. I want to encourage widows and widowers and folks, your spouse is gone. Well, there's a reason why you're still here. You know, don't blame yourself or get mad or think you should have gone first. And you were the crummy one and they were the godly one. Why did, you know, no. Understand there's a reason. And God's got a purpose. The opportunity to keep his job and promises faithfulness in the midst of continued opposition. He's not going to say, "Well, okay, oh here's a deal. All right, fine, Jeremiah, please, 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 would you stay my prophet? Don't quit, don't quit. Okay, fine. I tell you what, if you stay my prophet, I'll I'll make all these bad stuff things stop happening. Just just please, okay." You're like a desperate boss that's begging you to not quit and stay on the job and I'll give you a raise and I'll give you extra vacation time and please, all right, you not have to, you don't have to do this thing anymore. If you just please stay. That's just a desperation thing, right? God doesn't do that. But he's offering the invitation and promising it's gonna get worse, but I'll be with you. I will strengthen you. You will be the tower, the fortified tower of bronze. Can you imagine? You, under, you do understand, right, that all the tough things you're griping about are preparing you for the worst things that are coming up? <laughs> you can't bail now. This is nothing compared to the tougher things that are coming up. He's using this to get you ready for that. See, right now you're just benching 250 because he's getting, ready, getting you ready to bench 300. And you're complaining that 250 is too heavy. All right but you're going to bench 300. You're going to bench 400. You're going to squat 800. Man. All right. But now you're, you're complaining, oh, it's too heavy now. I can't handle this now. Don't complain about this. This testing is designed to take you and, and actually be thankful. Something else I try to encourage people is, you know, this test you think you can't bear, you're not wrong. I mean, you're not right. You, you can bear it. But let me tell you something else. A year ago, you would have been horrible. Last year, if you'd have been facing this test a year ago, oh my, you'd be in jail. I'd be doing jail visits right now if this, if this test hit you a year ago. But look, look at this. You're still alive. You're still floating. You're still treading water. You're not doing nearly as bad as you think you are. Stay faithful because <laughs> God is using this for the next one that's coming up. And you've got to learn this lesson because there's brothers and sisters depending on you. You've got to learn this lesson. and See, what did the Lord tell Peter? I got, I'm running out of time, but in, in Luke 21, right, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Remember that? And what's the answer there? Jesus doesn't say, but that's okay. I prayed for you, and God's not going to let that happen. No. He says, but I have prayed for you, and it is going to happen. But you, when you return again, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. Okay? You know the passage I'm talking about? It's Luke 21. And and if you don't know this, and if it's not Luke 21, it's Luke 24. So I'll find it here. It's Luke 21. We can find it. This is one of those top of my head things. Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. All right, maybe it's twenty-two. Ethel knows. Ethel's laughing at me right now. Okay. Twenty-two thirty-two. Okay, there we go. Thank you. Twenty-two thirty-two. Thank you. See, this is, you bear one another's burdens, and you thus fulfill the law of Christ. <laughs> Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. (laughs) And what I really want to read in the next verse is, but don't worry about it. God would never let something like that happen to you. Right? No, bad things don't happen to you. Good people like you. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Guess what? He's going to let it happen. It's going to happen. The church age is the age age of, of sifting We are in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict, but I have prayed for you. You're going to go through the mill, but guess what? You've got an advocate that sits at the Father's right hand that died on the cross for your sins, and now he ever liveth to make intercession. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And it's actually going to happen. You're going to deny me three times. And you, when once you have turned again... See, God knows the tests you're going to fail, the tests you're going to succeed... And even the ones you fail become opportunities to learn from them and benefit other people. When once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You say, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want them to know that I failed that test. I'm too embarrassed. Oh, If they know I blew that test, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not telling them anything. They're on their own. Well, no, wait a minute. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. You who are spiritual, restore such a one, looking to yourself too, lest you also be tempted. Yes, it may be personal, it may be tough, it may be your own realm of difficulty, but that's been assigned to you. Strengthen your brethren. And of course, this is where hothead Peter says, oh, I'm I'm ready, I'm ready to go to prison and to death. Well, guess what? There's things worse than death, like staying here. Okay? Serving. If death was the worst thing imaginable, then Job's wife would have died along with the ten kids. But no. God kept Mrs. Job alive. That was worse for Job. All right. Am I wrong? All right. You're laughing. You're laughing. But chapter 2 presents the pinnacle of human testing. and All right. Okay, that's true. I can be dead right. Yeah. Let's look at this. And again, I think this is similar language to what Ezekiel... Ezekiel was told he was going to have a forehead like flint. And um, I include this passage... Let me get back to Jeremiah 15. I include this passage. I use the Ezekiel passage. I think you don't want to be stiff-necked, but you do want to be uh, flinty foreheaded, right? You want to be you want to be tough. If you're going to be in the ministry, you want to be the tower of bronze, and you need the Lord to do it. You can't be tough yourself. The Lord's got to do this. Um One of the things, you know, we evaluate when we we look at a young man and we see, well, you're a teacher, but are you a pastor teacher? And where's your giftedness? And how well does the Lord sustain you through some of the flaming arrows and the attacks and the insults and the unfair things? And if you are very, very thin-skinned, you're going to need an awful lot of training. And it's going to be a long time before we lay on hands. And it may be the actual indication of a giftedness or or non-giftedness in a particular ministry field. Because uh, if, if, uh, if you can't be insulted and, and, and all of that, then I don't believe Jesus Christ would put you in a ministry and, and hold you in his right hand in the midst of a lampstand because that's just, that's just the nature of it. You're going to smash iron and bronze yourself? What are you going to do? So um, I, will, I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. Jeremiah becomes a tower, and though they fight against you, they will not prevail over you. This is similar to the the gates of hell will not prevail against you. This is almost like on this rock I will build my church. Think about it. This is Jeremiah's personal promise. They will not prevail over you, for I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. There it is. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you that you are with us in every facet of ministry. Father, thank you for being faithful. Thank you, Father, in uh, in season and out of season. Rejoice over your faithfulness. And I do pray, Father, for Pastor Dan and his prayer considerations and Corpus Christi Bible Church and their prayer considerations. He's uh, he's looking for a pulpit. They're looking for a pastor. It might be that, that those two things are going to come together, but, Father, it may not be. And so in the meantime, give them wisdom. Give him wisdom. Let uh, these uh, weeks of teaching and ministry be a blessing for all parties involved. And Father, just thank you for being faithful. I thank you for Jeremiah. In Jesus Christ's name I do pray. Amen.